It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And Father, we just humbly ask as we continue now to worship that by your Holy Spirit you would prepare us by giving us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church assembled as we open up this portion of your word. We ask, meet us where we're at, Lord. Quicken our mind. Make our heart receptive. Take away every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of you being spoken into our lives this morning. Speak to us, Lord. We all know that we need to hear something that you would say to us. So may every intent behind why you gave this portion of Scripture find its maximum impact in our hearts personally this morning. Bless your word. And speak to us personally, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, who you personally believe uh, Jesus to be is certainly going to directly influence how you then personally relate to him in your life. And I hope you can tell just by the reading of our text this morning, though it's a short passage, verse 15 through 18, here the Bible tells us a great deal about exactly who Jesus is. You can tell just in the cursory reading of it, it keeps saying, he is, he is, continual references to who Jesus is. And if we believe what the Bible tells us here about who Jesus is, and we believe these things, it will greatly influence how we personally relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. The backdrop of where we come from, Paul, as we've seen in our earlier verses, has kind of given some introductory remarks to encourage the church that he's writing to here in Colossae. Uh, he's spoken to them about how he's been praying for their spiritual maturity, but now he begins in a letter to directly address the things of concern that were on his heart. And as we said in the introduction of this letter, Paul is concerned about some of the wrong spiritual ideas and false teaching that this particular group of Christians are being exposed to. A heresy or a false teaching that would later become known as Gnosticism. And it's an error that was threatening the spiritual health of the church. And Gnosticism basically were some distorted ideas. It was sort of a combination of man-made ideas of Greek philosophy and mysticism kind of mixed together with Jewish ritualism. And its foremost danger, though it had many, its foremost danger was the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ or the divinity of Jesus Christ. And what we mean by that is it denied the fact that Jesus is God. And that was crucial in fact, to kind of just help us grasp what we're going to look at this morning, I want to just read to you actually directly a few things out of an excerpt uh, that describes this false teaching we're talking about of Gnosticism to help us see why Paul was writing the things that he was here particularly and as we go through this letter together. Uh, it says the following, Gnostics considered themselves a spiritually elite group holding a superior knowledge who could help lesser ones 
attain to spiritual, a deeper spirituality. According to them, it was by knowledge as opposed to faith that humanity was able to be regenerated. Gnostics held the basic doctrine that all matter, physical matter, or created was evil. And only the spirit realm was good. They reasoned that God could not therefore be involved in creation because being a perfect God, he could not touch matter which was intrinsically evil. Therefore, they declared the world came into being through a complicated process as God put forth thousands and thousands of emanations. The idea is lesser gods or spirit emanations coming out from the one true God. So distant from God that the real God could not touch matter or create the physical world. Of course, these lesser gods of creation were so far removed from the ultimate God that this spirit that ultimately brought creation would be evil because of its contact with the physical realm. Thus, reasoning led to the belief that Jesus Christ was not really the Son of God. He could not have taken a physical human body because all matter is evil. This delusion spawned the Gnostic lie that Jesus was only a ghost-like phantom who did not possess a real physical human body. To the Gnostics, Christ was not the creator, for he could not be. There was no incarnation, and Jesus' body physically is not something that was real. Christ was not enough, therefore, for spiritual life. The Gnostics built a system by which one could begin with the final inferior spiritual emanation or being God sent forth and then work their way back through a series of emanations all the way eventually back through the higher knowledge to the one true God. This is why Paul had to combat the heresy of this proposed idea of many successive emanations from an original deity which were supposed spiritual angelic mediators that would be responsible for the act of creation and the headship over the physical world. Now, having just spoken in verse 13 and 14, we saw very clearly last week of how God, Paul said, had qualified all of us to become partakers in the eternal inheritance and that came through his Son, Jesus Christ, who was sent to be the mediator between divinity and humanity, between God and man, and that God sent forth his son Jesus to reconcile this world as Jesus lived a sinless life. And then verse 13 and 14 told us very clearly that Jesus delivered us from the power of darkness, that God through Jesus conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, and that it's in Jesus, verse 14, that we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. With the topic of Jesus on Paul's mind, he just continues now to describe and declare who Jesus really is to demonstrate everything he could think of in the moment about Jesus Christ. And the first thing he tells us about Jesus, if you're a note taker or a mental note taker, is very simply this, three words, Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. Look how he begins in verse 15 regarding Jesus. He says that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. That is one of many clear declarations in our Bible of the deity or divinity of Jesus. The teaching that Jesus of Nazareth is God who came to live among us as man for a time that we might see God more clearly. It says here in our text that Jesus is the image. The term means an exact representation 
of the invisible or the unseen God. And we can put that together in our minds of the invisible God. God's being is spirit. So God dwells in the spiritual realm in the eternal dimension. So we don't today see God with the physical or natural eye because God is spirit and dwells in the realm of the spirit. And so therefore, we don't see God with a physical eye. However, there came a point in human history when God in his love chose to directly reveal himself to humanity whom he created and whom he loves so that we might see him clearly and understand him more fully. God decided to actually come and live among his creation in a personal way for a set period of time in human history to reveal who he is and what he's like in a fuller way and then ultimately as we'll see next week to even reconcile us back into relationship with himself so that our sin would no longer separate us from God and we could have a relationship and the way God accomplished his revelation of who he was on this earth was by sending his own son Jesus Christ to this earth Jesus the very son of God being fully God being ever existent at the right hand of the father at the throne of God possessing all the attributes of deity being God himself Jesus left the throne of God the Bible teaches us was miraculously conceived by a miracle in the womb of a virgin woman as God the father placed miraculously the life of his son in the womb of a virgin woman so that she could give birth to Jesus and thereby allowing him to be fully God and fully man at the exact same time simultaneously so that he could be fully in touch with divinity and completely in touch with humanity to be the perfect reconciler and the mediator to build the bridge between the two so that Jesus could be born as a man and live as a man among mankind to reveal God to us in the fullest way in human form through Jesus we were able to have God reveal himself as the invisible God in a very visible way it tells us in John chapter 1 regarding Jesus that he was always present with the Father in heaven and it says there that Jesus was God and then he became flesh and dwelt among us that is Jesus being God added to his deity a second nature he added humanity to his deity so that he might have a dual nature taking flesh upon himself to dwell among human beings Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the express image of God's person that is he shows the invisible God in the most visible way living among us the Bible teaches Jesus is God living as man on this earth to reveal God to mankind in fact remember John chapter 14 as we were studying John's gospel on one occasion in verses 8 and 9 they said to Jesus in conversation Lord show us the Father that's sufficient for us in other words what they were saying in essence is show us God show us God Lord would you show us God that would be sufficient if we could just see God that would help our faith Jesus answered in this way have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me Philip he who has seen me has seen the father you can't be more direct than that show us God and Jesus as God says have I been with you so long that you haven't noticed yet and then he said he who's seen me has seen God the father 
because Jesus was the image of the invisible God. He was God living in flesh among his creation. Now, that means if we ever want to know more clearly as a person what God is really like, the best thing we can do is to look at Jesus. You want to know how Jesus feels about children or how God feels about children? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how God feels about spiritual hypocrisy? Look at Jesus and the way he acted and related those things in the gospel. Do you want to know how Jesus feels about people who are suffering and, and what Jesus would say and how Jesus would respond? All the, all, how God is like is exactly who Jesus is because Jesus was revealing God to humanity. So as we want to know what God is like, all we need to do is look at Jesus for the Bible is clear in his teaching that Jesus is God. The next thing we see in verse 15 as Paul goes on to speak of Jesus is that he's not only God, but secondly, that Jesus is Lord over all that exists. Everything that exists. Jesus is Lord. Look what Paul says. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Again, contrary to what the Gnostics were conveying in that day, contrary to what certain pseudo-Christian cults, Jehovah's Witness and other pseudo-Christian cults teach in this day, that Jesus is not God and that Jesus is just the first one created by God, that, he, that, that he's certainly the first one that God created. He's the first spiritual being that was created among spiritual beings. Listen, that would wrongly teach that Jesus was created. And that would mean he's inferior to God and that he can't be God if he was the first one created by God. That would deny his deity, notice the text is very evident when you look at it. It does not say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. It says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Again, I just say, read your Bible, friend. It doesn't say he's the firstborn of all that was created. That would mean he was created. It says he's the firstborn over all that was created, implying lordship, superiority. In fact, even the term that's used there, firstborn, is a term that does not refer to first in chronology of events or order. It's a term that speaks of being first in rank, first in position, uh, holding the place of supreme authority over all things, being first in importance. In the Old Testament, when we read stories of the firstborn, many a times the, the firstborn did not always speak of the oldest child or the eldest son. It referred to a position of having the highest rank in the family, the one who had the superior place, the prominent place of highest importance and all the privileges and prerogatives and responsibilities. That was the firstborn. Many times in the Old Testament, we see a younger son would end up having the role of being the firstborn the son of superiority, the one in a place of prominence and of highest importance. So when it says here, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, it indicates that he has a place of supremacy, of higher rank, of being over all other things. It's a simple implication of his lordship, of his rulership over all creation, that Jesus is in charge of everything in the created order that he is Lord over it all, that he has authority and supremacy over it all. And we see that demonstrated when we read the Gospels. When you read the Gospel accounts, you can see how at times Jesus would miraculously show his authority 
over everything that existed. Jesus would do miracles to show that he had authority over nature. He would turn water to wine or he'd take five loaves and a few fish and he would just miraculously override the elements of nature. Jesus would show his, his power over the physical elements. He would calm storms and creation and nature. That They would say, who, he'd calm a storm and say, who is this? The wind and the waves obey him. Jesus would show his authority over disease and human sickness. He would show his authority even over the demons. And the reason is because Jesus is Lord over all creation. He's the firstborn supreme one, the ruler over all creation. He's Lord of all. The question for us personally is, is are we relating to Jesus properly? Are we relating to Jesus as the Lord over all? Are we honoring his lordship? Or are we resisting his lordship in our life by allowing ourselves to be in control? We're on the throne rather than letting Jesus be on the throne being lured in our own lives personally. And the main reason, as I said, that Jesus could not be created as some wrongly teach is verse 16 directly refutes that. Look what it goes on to tell us. Here it tells us that Jesus, thirdly, is the creator. He couldn't be created because verse 16 says Jesus is creator. Look what it says. It says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. The Bible declares that Jesus was directly involved in the process of creation, that he was being one with God the Father, working in direct cooperation with the Father in heaven as the events of Genesis 1 and 2 were taking place. That Jesus was directly engaged and actually was the agent that was actually bringing forth the creation, the very act of creating all things. It says in our text here in verse 16, by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. And then again, it restates in the end of the verse, all things were created through him, by him and through him. All things were created. In John chapter 1, referring to Jesus, it tells us this. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. If you look at the Genesis account of creation right in the first few chapters of your Bible, you ever take notice that when it comes to the creation of man, you hear these words. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. That's plural. Who was God the Father speaking to? He certainly wasn't talking to the angels because they were created. They're not made in the image of God. They're, they're a created order. So there was a conversation happening. I believe it was among the Trinity. Let us make man in our image and our likeness as the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God were working together in the created act. So Jesus being creator brought into existence everything that, that does exist in the universe, created things material and immaterial. That's what verse 16 tells us. Notice, it says he created what is visible, that is what's on the earth. And it also says in verse 16 that Jesus created what is invisible, that is things in heaven. 
or the spiritual dimension. That is all the spiritual beings that exist, the heavenly eternal dimension, all these things. Jesus created thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. He gave existence to everything's origin. And that's why he is over all these things because he is the creator of all those things. All things were created through him. But look at the end of verse 16. Don't miss these important words. It says all things were created through him. Last three words and for him. That's an important thing to underline or take note of. All things weren't just created by Jesus. The Bible says all things were created for Jesus. That is the purpose of their existence. The reason things were created. Everything was created for Jesus's purpose and Jesus's pleasure. That is the true purpose for everything's existence to serve the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring pleasure to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why things exist in everything that does exist. Now, let me just say, would you agree it is pretty sad how far in rebellion creation has gone to this biblical original concept that everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus? we've certainly gravitated rather far from the purpose for which everything, everyone, and anything exists in the known universe. We've gravitated very far from that in rebellion. The question for us personally, though, is what about our own lives? Are we seeking to use our own lives for him? Because that's why you exist. That's what you were created for. And please hear me this morning in saying this, when you neglect that basic reality and use your life for any other purpose, to serve your own self-interest, to be the captain of your own fate and the master of your own soul, when you're going to use your life to do what you want to do, to please yourself and to pursue your own purposes and goals and existence. And basically, if you think you exist for you, that's why you're empty. That's why you're empty. That's why you, it, it just keeps not working out because you're neglecting the very purpose you exist as a human being. The very purpose for which you exist as a human being is there's a God who loves you and knit you together in your mother's womb and created you with unique gifts and, and personality and all your life experiences. He allowed you to be born in the family you were born in and go through what you would go through and experience what you did. Even the hardships and the challenges all to shape and prepare and get you to a place where you would come to realize the reason I exist can't be for this and this and this. There's got to be a reason I exist. And there is. It's for Jesus. It's that you would serve Jesus. And on the other side of that, when you use your life for Jesus, to serve Jesus, to live for Jesus over everything else that you do, that's when you begin to fulfill the highest reason for your existence and your life starts to actually take purpose. And you start to find this inner fulfillment and this sense of being at rest within yourself because you realize this is why. And let me say in light of that, to understand this, you should never feel, ladies and gentlemen, your life doesn't have purpose because that's not true. Verse 16 says your life does have a purpose. It's for him. It's for him. Oh, my life has no purpose, man. Just no purpose at all. No, that's not true. Everyone's life has purpose. Your purpose is for him. It's for Jesus. 
you set aside all the other purposes and you make that your purpose for existence you'll find meaning to your life you'll find fulfillment rather than being empty and miserable because you're not using your life in that way so we were created for him by him to serve him and we go on in verse 17 to learn that Jesus also we're told existed notice before anything else in physical creation did it says verse 17 that Jesus is before all things another translation renders that he existed before everything else began so important for us to remember doctrinally Jesus' life did not begin on that night that he was born to the Virgin Mary that was when his human life as a man began on this earth for a set period of time in his humanity but Jesus is the self-existent eternal God He's existed forever. He, he has been around for all of eternity. More than that, he existed before anything ever came into being. That's what the text is telling us here. Jesus is before, the idea is he antidates, he predates all things. He's been around forever with the Father before anything in creation ever even came into being. Now, to me, that's a great encouragement because it reminds me that Jesus has more familiarity, more experience, more capability than any other to handle anything that happens on this earth. Sometimes we go to say, hey, I want to I, I use that mechanic because he is the most experienced mechanic, so I'm going to use that mechanic. Well, listen, Jesus is the most experienced mechanic to fix everything that happens in humanity and creation any problem any issue any struggle Jesus has got a lot of experience I was just talking to someone recently and you know kind of the typical dialogue and it's like they're you know asking and it's almost you get the sense they're like looking to you to, to kind of fix their problem and I finally said listen I can't fix your problem because I'm human like you and I can tell it's actually frustrating you that I'm telling you to go to God but what else can I do? That is my best job. Like, like Jonathan, this is that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. He said, David, I can't fix your problems. You got a lot of issues here, man. My dad's trying to kill you. You're running all over the place. I mean, I don't know what you want me to do, but what I can do here, David, let me put your hand in God's hand because God can help you. And see, Jesus, because he's the ever-existent one, there is no problem that Jesus has ever faced because he's been around for a really long time where he goes, oh my, that is huge. I don't know how to handle that one. I've never seen that one before. He's seen it a few times. And he's helped lots of people through human history to work through those things. So what a wonderful thing to know that about our Lord and therefore we can go to him because Jesus is before and has been before all things. Now, if Jesus truly in the most literal sense is before all things can I say by way of personal application that perhaps that would be appropriate then that the same should be true in our life experience that Jesus would be and should be before all things because he's been before all things so in my life he should be before all things evaluate your lifestyle this morning I encourage you is Jesus before all things or do other things come before Jesus in their level of importance or the time or commitment level that you give to them? A proper way to live in relationship to the Lord Jesus is for Jesus to be first. 
that Jesus would be before all other things in our lives. And Jesus said that way of living would even be honored for it tells us in Matthew 6.33 that Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, the ideas of the earth, will be added to you as the result of living that way. Well, next we learn in verse 17 that Jesus also controls everything and, and he keeps everything from falling apart. Look what he says in verse 17 going on. And Jesus, he says, in him all things consist again jesus is controlling everything that word to consist there it literally is a term that means to cohere or to hold things together so that they don't break apart or unravel at the seams we could say uh, jesus is holding everything together so things don't fall apart this speaks of how again not only is jesus the creator of all things he created everything, brought it into existence, but then he's also the sustainer of all things. He's sustaining everything that he created in the universe, visible, invisible, known, unknown. He's, he's sustaining it all, upholding everything he created, keeping it functioning, being responsible to make sure it doesn't fall apart, holding it all together, making it keep working. Everything would immediately fall apart if Jesus wasn't still holding it all together. We think our world is falling apart. If Jesus took his hands off, oy vey. That's all I can tell you. Jesus holds everything together. You know, sometimes we'll say of a person maybe in a family or maybe in a business setting, we'll say, man, that person is holding everything together. And we understand what we mean by that, that what they do as an important person is keeping everything going. And we say, man, they are the one holding everything together. And this is the idea when we think of Jesus only to a much, 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 much greater degree. He is holding everything together everything together of all of creation's existence ponder what it takes to sustain even the created universe the systems of nature just to keep everything functioning photosynthesis and change of seasons and weather pattern i mean just to keep everything functioning imagine again just what it takes to, to keep our human bodies i mean the complexity of these physical bodies keeping hearts beating and lungs breathing and organs functioning, things that we in an involuntary way have no control over. And he's keeping all these things functioning in the life of every breathing person that's still alive at the moment. He's steering around asteroids and stars and things. I, mean, I mean, could you imagine the catastrophe and the crashes and things that could happen? And he's controlling all these things, holding all these things together. And let me just say beyond that, all the way down to even the most basic elements of molecular existence in atoms. Can I give you just a, a brief science lesson? In the nucleus of an atom, the most basic you know, molecular you know, thing that exists of all of, of what does have existence, in the nucleus of an atom, there are multitudes of protons which have a positive charge. Now, we know playing with magnets or, you know, electricity, that opposite charges, positive and negative, do what? They attract, right? And same or like charges repel. They, they, they push away from one another. When you have like charges, they repel and push apart. Well, inside the nucleus of an atom, you only have protons with positive charge in, in that nucleus there. 
There are no electrons bringing a negative charge inside the nucleus of an atom. Now, if you have all the same like charge, that should cause an atom, therefore, realistically, to break apart, to, to collapse or to just sort of implode, if you would. So the question becomes, wait a minute, the most molecular structure in an atom, what's keeping an atom together? That's unnatural. Really smart scientists say it's atomic glue. The Bible just says it's Jesus. It's just Jesus. Every atom of what everything is composed of is because Jesus is keeping it all together. And likely, I believe, that one day when he returns and he discards of this earth, that he's just going to let go. He's just going to let go. And that authority and that control that he's had. Now look, not just in the natural physical material universe but in all of our lives perhaps you're here today and you're worried about something and how you can hold it all together i know we never struggle with that right i just don't know how i can hold it all together i feel like i'm falling apart how am i going to hold it all together how are we going to hold it all together how's it all going to stay together let's be encouraged jesus is the one who holds it all together and jesus is the one who can hold it all together and who can keep it all together and, and sustain things and keep it going by his preserving power. I mean, I don't think we have to think very far to realize that we live in a very uncertain world, ladies and gentlemen. Unstable times. I mean, I look at our world and it's like things just seem to be unraveling. People, certainly. Just unraveling because certainly as they don't honor the Lord, their lives are just unraveling. And it's hard to see. I mean, we, we see financial markets crashing and storms that are coming and we, we see evil acts of terrorism. And it's like, man, the world is unraveling. But I don't think God wants us as his people to be unraveling ourselves and to be in fear. I think God wants us to believe that we know the Lord of all and that despite how the world does seem to be unraveling, that Jesus can, can hold things together. And whether it's our health or our marriage or our family or our job security or our own emotional or mental health status or our spiritual condition, that we can have confidence that Jesus is the one who can hold it all together because of who he is. Paul goes on, verse 18, to then tell us another thing about Jesus by saying Jesus is the head of the body the church. So here we learn that Jesus is in charge of the church and supposed to be the one directing it, therefore. Now, when the Bible uses the term church, it should go without saying. It's not a reference to the building we meet in for worship, but the people of God. If we all walked outside and kept studying our Bible, the church would be out in the parking lot. Because the church is the people of God, the spiritual family of God, the followers of Christ. And the church is often therefore referred in the Bible metaphorically as a body. 1 Corinthians 12 uses this concept very clearly there. Spiritually, metaphorically, God refers to his people as a body, the body of Christ. And let me just say, that's a really good picture of the church, the people of God, because the church is not supposed to be an organization or a social club. This isn't supposed to be like the Moose Lodge or the Elks Club or the Boy Scouts. Or that, that's not what we are. We're not an organization 
where people participate periodically if the function should interest them that day or I mean if they're having something interesting or we're not in, the Bible teaches we're a living organism we're a body and a body again a living organism where there's divine life and things function interdependently they're, they're dependent upon one another they can function independent so that there's health and growth and proper experiences a body is a living thing made up of many different parts and systems functioning that are all interconnected serving various functions interdependent upon one another for survival and for health and for growth in a proper way and all these different parts in a body each receives what it needs from the rest of the body contributes its own purpose all for the same overall reason of the body's health and listen that is how the church is supposed to function ladies and gentlemen like a body that's how the church is supposed to function not like a business not like a social club the church is supposed to function like a living body functions in that same manner that's the illustration and in every human body if it's going to function properly it needs what a head which is the the brain area or the control center for the entire body and so the head the bible teaches is what jesus is because the analogy there again he's the head of the body because the head is what directs all the body and what happens within it the head the brain gives direction so the body functions properly harmoniously so that each part's doing what it's supposed to do and, and interacting properly and the head directs all that happens among the body and that's the spiritual role of the Lord Jesus. He's the head of the body of Christ, the people of God. That's his role, to be functioning as our spiritual head. Ephesians 1 says, God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body so in the truest sense clearly jesus is supposed to be in charge in the church jesus is supposed to be in charge not the pastor not elders not deacons not a board not a council of overseers of a bigger affiliation or denomination Jesus is who is supposed to be properly the one that is in charge providing the direction he is the head of the body because the church belongs to Jesus it's his role he said I will build my church and this is such an important understanding again if we can think of a natural body if the head in a natural body is not directing the body as it should what happens the body malfunctions things get unhealthy if the brain's not sending the signals or the body's not responding properly to the signals from the head so in a human body if the body is not being directed by the head as it should that body malfunctions and listen the same is true spiritually if the body of christ is not letting jesus have proper headship and honoring jesus in that way the church will begin to get unhealthy it'll start to malfunction things will start to get diseased and, and harmony will disappear and, and, and just bad and unfortunate things will begin to happen Jesus is supposed to be in charge he's who we're all supposed to be connected to we're the body we're supposed to all stay connected to Jesus and we're all supposed to be looking to Jesus for guidance, the church universally and the church locally he should be who we look to for direction regarding our decisions that is 
how we function, what we do in ministry. It should be Jesus that we're seeking to know his mind, how he wants us to operate as a local church, what we do and what we don't do. He's the one whose mind we should be seeking. And God help us, let me say, God help us as a local church to the best of our ability by the grace of God to acknowledge and respect the headship of Jesus, allowing it to be the Lord Jesus who is in charge of us all here at Calvary Chapel. God help us. Because to the degree that we honor that together, that spiritual reality has great bearing upon the health of the church and that the church would function in the way that Jesus wants it to. Next, we learn as well here in verse 18 that Jesus also, interesting, look at this, is the first one to come back from the dead and not just back from the dead, but to never die again. That's what's being conveyed as we go on in verse 18. Jesus says, is the beginning the firstborn from, that is, among or from the realm of the dead. Now, what this is saying is Jesus is the first one to come back to life and then remain alive and never die again. That Jesus is the firstborn of a brand new order that's now available of life to arise out from among the dead, having completely overcome the death process forever and to never experience it again. We know in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, people were raised from the dead on a few occasions, miraculously. Jesus himself, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, Jesus brought people miraculously back from the dead, but guess what? All those people, they still died ultimately. And I think to myself, bummer. I mean, I'm not looking forward to the process the first time. Not like you get to practice it or something. They died were risen from the dead miraculously for God's purpose and then they died again a second time that's a distinction Jesus is the first human being who went through the physical death process rose from the dead to never die again to live eternally forevermore in a resurrected eternal glorified body Jesus defeated the death process he remains alive forever. That's why Jesus is the firstborn out from among the dead. That is, he, he defeated the whole process of death and never will be subject to it again. That's why Jesus said this in Revelation 1. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. The idea is I became dead. And then he says, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I became dead. But he says, I'm alive and unlike anyone else, I'm alive forevermore. Death's been defeated. It's been overcome. The process of death was taken away. It's power by Jesus' work. And in this way, Jesus becomes the firstborn of a whole new spiritual order of life now for all of us. The very beginning of a new order, if you would, spiritually of an eternal, resurrected, glorified body to come back after death and, and live continuously forever to never experience death again. That's why the Bible says regarding the eternal dimension that there's no more sickness or suffering or sorrow or death. It's been taken care of in Christ. And for those of us who are connected to Jesus, we will not only raise to eternal life after our physical death, overcoming death to never die again, but live forever in eternal glorified body. That's what Jesus meant in John 11 when he said this, I'm the resurrection and the life he who believes in me, though he may die, 
he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. In essence, Jesus was saying, listen, will you die physically? Yes, but when you die physically, that is not the cessation of your existence. It's just your moving day. It's just when you depart from the physical body and you enter into the presence of the Lord and ultimately you receive a new eternal glorified body and death will never be experienced again because Jesus has the firstborn of that new order of eternal life for all of us. And because of who Jesus is, his greatness and superiority and lordship overall, lastly we note, therefore, it's so that he might have the highest place of importance. Look how verse 18 ends. It says, so that in all things, Jesus may have the preeminence. God the Father arranged all these things that Jesus would be everything he is and as the creator, as the Lord of all, as, as the one controlling and sustaining all things so that his greatness and superiority would allow Jesus to have the preeminence. The preeminence. Other translations render that that Jesus might have first place in all things or the supremacy. The word preeminent speaks of having a distinguished role of the most important and superior place the most important and superior place over all things above all else supreme importance. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what Jesus is supposed to have. Jesus is supposed to have the place of supreme importance in all of our lives. Jesus is supposed to have the place of supreme importance over everything in my life. Jesus is to have the place of supreme importance over everything in our family. That he is the place of supreme importance. Jesus is to have the place of supreme importance over everything and everyone in the church. Not a name of a church or some slick presenter that talks to you every week or some awesome worship band or some trendy thing that... Listen, Jesus, he's not the mascot of a church. He's the Lord and the head of the church. He's to have supreme importance. And if we keep Jesus in the right place, everything else falls into place in our lives, in our families, and in the church. Let's stand. Let's pray together.